Let's pray. Lord, we, Lord, we, we open our hearts to you this morning. God, we invite you to move in the power of your spirit in our lives. Lord, we're about to dive into your word, into your truth, into what you've given us to live life. Lord, you've given us truth. You've given us direction and instruction. You've given us your powerful word that works in us to accomplish things, to develop us, to change us, to bring us freedom, to bring us revelation, to bring us direction. And God, we just open our hearts to you right now. We consciously say, Lord, work on my heart today. Lord, bring uh, the daily bread that I need to survive today. What I need to hear from you, what I need to learn from you. God, I pray that you would strengthen relationships today, that you would strengthen our understanding of you and our relationship with you. God, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would be moving amongst us, uh, just bringing adjustment and change where you want to bring it through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, there are not seatbelts in your chairs, but you're going to go ahead and want to fasten your seatbelt this morning, okay? I may offend you today. We're going to dive into the Word of God, and sometimes the Word of God challenges our thinking. It challenges our way of life and our mode of operation. Maybe I won't. Maybe I won't get that far today. But I want to just uh, grab your attention, get your awareness of the Word of God. We've got uh, some good scriptures here to cover this morning. We had our good friend Mark Spencer with us last week, and he gave us some instruction about relationship, and I want to continue in the idea of relationships how valuable relationships are. Relationships are the building blocks of our society, of our world. In fact, creation began with a relationship between a man and his God and a man and a woman. Relationship is in the base design of God for all of creation. And the way we manage those relationships, the way we treat one another, the way we speak to one another, the way we respond to situations is of utmost importance to God. He gives us tons of instruction in his word about how we relate to one another. And so I want to dive into that this morning. I want to begin in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That is a typo there. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I'm going to read that one more time. A new commandment I give you. This is Jesus speaking. He has just washed the feet of his disciples. And Judas has just marched out the door to betray him. And he's giving his final instruction to his guys, to his people, to the men that are following him. This is his new commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? And how do we follow that example? You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love from one another. According to Jesus himself, the one identifiable characteristic of those that follow him would be their love. And if I take that truth and I begin to evaluate my life and the world in which I live and the way I relate to it, I wonder if that's actually true. It's a challenge to me. I wonder if the world around me looks at me and knows me by my love for you. 
or my love for my family or the people around me in my relationships? Is that the identifiable mark of Christianity, their love? Because to Jesus, it was his new commandment. That was the identifiable thing. Now, he could have chose lots of other things. If we went out on the street this afternoon and we begin to survey the people on the street, the world, if you will, and we were going to begin to ask, what are the identifiable marks of the church? What kind of answers would we hear? Okay, if you're starting to get uncomfortable now, just make sure your seatbelt's fastened, okay? It's not to condemn, but it's to evaluate. The Word of God comes and brings us conviction. It challenges our day-to-day mode of operation and thinking. And we have to evaluate what is true and what is right and good. And is the way I'm living, is the way I'm behaving, are the things that I'm exhibiting, are they right and good? And if they're not, what do I got to do to get myself in alignment with who God is? You know, Jesus could have chose other things to say. What else could have you chosen? The world will know you because you're dressed nice and wear a tie to church. Could have said that. The world will know you because you always say please and thank you. Could have said that. Could have said, the world will know you because you tip well. Because we do, right? We're generous. I like those of you that just said yes. An enthusiastic generosity. That's what we are called to as Christians. These are good things. We do want to be known by these, things, by these things, right? But they aren't the thing that Jesus drew our attention to in instructing us. He could have said, the world will know you because you're the best arguers and debaters. Didn't say that, did he? That make, everyone will know I'm a Christian because I will have the best arguments. And I'll put people in their place. Jesus could have said, the world will know you because you're always right. Right? We're always right socially, morally, politically. Jesus didn't say that, did he? Because we're not. The world doesn't know us by all those things. Jesus did not design a system that way. Jesus designed a system. Listen, your, your argument isn't with me, it's with him. The world will know you by your love. So what does it mean to love? It's such a challenge. He could have chosen lots of things, but his priority is that we would demonstrate to the world around us that we love one another. That that is our priority over all things. In fact, loving one another should fuel all of our mission what we do, and how we do it. Last week, Mark preached about the thread of relationship. And for those of you that were not here, I'm just going to give you a brief description of something that he did. Mark had a tug-of-war rope right up here in the front. And he took people on one side that are on one side of an issue, and people on the other side that are on the other side of an issue. And there's a tug-of-war that goes on in our relationships. If you've been married more than five minutes, you know this is true. There's a back and forth that goes on over certain issues. And there's a tension on that relationship, that thread of relationship where you and I, you and somebody else, me and you, are on both sides of something and we're pulling different directions. There's a tension. But relationships aren't really like a tug-of-war rope. They don't hold up that well. They're like a thread. And Mark got out a little piece of thread 
And if you and I pull too hard on the thread, it breaks. Relationship breaks. And it was a challenge for us to think about. And then Mark went on to say, what does it take to resolve a tug of war? Either one person wins and pulls the other people over the line and they all fall down in the mud or whatever's in the middle. But in our relationships, we learn to compromise. Compromise is a dirty word. Some of you just got really tense when I said the word compromise. What do you mean compromise? Well, I want to get into that today. I want to talk about what that means in our relationships. But we need in this conversation about love and this conversation about relationships and the tug of war in life and our everything from our social relationships, our political relationships, our marriages, our relationships with our children, our relationship with God himself. We've got to remember the value of relationships. That creation itself was established in a relationship situation. Our relationships are valuable and how we navigate them is extremely important to God. And so it's a worthwhile endeavor to take inventory and evaluate the way in which we relate and treat one another. Galatians chapter 5, 14. Paul said this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you can take all of the instruction, all of the law that God had put in place, those 10 commandments that God gave Moses, all of the law that followed that, all of it can be summed up in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I wonder, would we need any laws if we truly loved? I thought about this a lot this week. Seems like a worthwhile endeavor, right? kind of a philosophical question, would laws be necessary if we truly loved? And I don't think they would. I wouldn't need a single law. I couldn't come up with a single law that was needed if I truly loved others. Let's start with a radical one like murder. God had to tell us not to murder because otherwise we would. It happened in the very second generation of creation. People want to hurt other people. That's not love. That is the opposite of love. So God sets up a law that says, do not kill. That's not an act of love towards the other person to take their life or to rob all the people around that person of their loved one. If I truly loved, you wouldn't have to tell me not to murder. I would understand that because I love the other person. And then I got as narrow as something like speeding tickets or paying taxes. Do I need laws about those if I truly love? If I really care that God gave me a life, or I really care about the other people on the street, I'm not going to speed. I don't need a speed limit. Reasonable and prudent. Come on. Right? Remember that? (laughs) There's a little bit of judgment issues there, but anyway. If I truly love, I would drive with compassion for others and myself. I, I came to the conclusion that there wouldn't be no law necessary if we truly loved like God loves. Doesn't that sound utopian or what? Maybe that's a little too idealistic, but it is a worthwhile exercise to think about all of the law. That's not just my idea. The whole law is summed up in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of my favorite definitions of the word love, and it really comes from the Hebrew idea of love, one of them is that you give preference. 
Okay, so if I love, after, after church today, you're going to go, maybe you're going to go out and eat. You're going to be like, I love this restaurant. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love this football team. I love this. I love that. All of those summed up in this idea that I give preference to that one over all the others. Do you give preference to others like you would give preference to yourself in a situation? In other words, not to be selfish, but to be selfless is the ultimate idea of love. To love like Jesus loved. Of course, Jesus was talking about the Old Testament law here, but I just wonder, you know, I wouldn't need a checklist about what sin is or isn't. See, sometimes we can get sucked into this game of like, I want to draw a real black and white line about what sin is in order so that I know so I can check all those boxes. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing, but I would then challenge that if I really was seeking love, I wouldn't need the checklist about sin to see how far I could push the limit without actually crossing it. Because this is about giving preference to God, preference to God's ways, preference to the people in your life, loving them as you would love yourself. John 15, 12 through 13. I know that's not the reality we live in. I just love the idea. If we all truly loved, what would it be like? Well, back to reality. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, we see in this passage of scripture that Jesus is drawing attention to himself saying, I am providing an example to you of what love really is. So when the Beatles sang, all you need is love, it's Jesus. Okay, I don't know if the Beatles thought so, but I do. All you need, you need Jesus to, do, to look at, to relate to, to study and understand, to walk in his footsteps, to behave like he did. Look to him as the example. How was it that Jesus loved? And are those principles then being reflected through my own life in the way that I love others? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Well, we know you and I have hindsight. We know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Jesus went to the cross and died. He did lay down his life for his friends, literally, in every way. He laid his life down and he instructed you and I, love like I did. Lay your life down for your friends. Jesus provides us with one of the most, forgive me for using the word, outrageous examples. It's just amazing, astounding what Jesus did for you and I when he didn't have to. And then says to us, I want you to do the same for the world around you and the people around you. Love them as ridiculously as I loved you. And then I look at myself and I go, oh boy, that's a challenge. It's difficult, but it's what we're called to in this life. Jesus valued relationships. See, humanity's relationship with God was by a thread. Man had rebelled against God. One sin, I might add. One sin. If you ever wonder how, yeah, sin's no big deal. One sin destroyed creation. One, we want to be in alignment with God. Our relationship with him hung by a thread and he had every right to cut it. He would have been justified in doing so. 
Because he gave us an opportunity and we rejected it. And we reject it every day in our day-to-day lives. It's not just Adam and Eve, it's you and I. But God didn't give himself preference. He gave you preference. And so how does that play out in the way then that you and I relate to one another? Jesus is speaking of himself because he was going to the cross to die, but he's also speaking to you and I to do likewise. I want to read out of 1 John chapter 4, 9 through 11. I spent a lot of time reading John's letters this week and, and reading his gospel because John, of all of the uh, New Testament authors, really hones in on the theme of love in his writings. He calls himself the, the one who Jesus loved. And you'll see um, strong themes. He almost writes poetically. I love the way John writes, but I have to reread it like five times because sometimes it can be difficult to just process how he writes. If you read the introduction to his gospel, he writes in such a, I mean, he might as well be starting like a Lord of the Rings novel, the way he, he writes it out. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And you're like, wow, I'll just stop there and have to process that for a while. That's how John wrote. And he wrote on the subject of love very powerfully. And he was drawing attention, it seems, in his writings to how much Jesus loved and how important it was for you and I to love. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Let's go to the next one. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us. What does that mean? That God's love was made manifest. He he made it visible. He made his love for us known in this. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he, he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Next slide. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, we're seeing this theme repeated throughout Jesus' words, throughout the teaching of the New Testament. If God loved us to this degree, then this is the degree in which we should love one another. It becomes a paramount issue over all other issues in the scripture, loving one another. How do we do that? What does it look like? Can we love like Jesus did? How did he love? When we look at this idea of compromising and the threat of relationship, and we don't like the word compromise, and I'll explain that more in a bit. Jesus had... He could have just grabbed humanity and pulled them across the tug of war line and and wiped everything out. But instead he compromised. He gave up what he had the right to for you and I. So I walked away from Mark's conversation with us last week wondering, did Jesus really compromise? I mean, compromise is a dirty word to Americans. How in the world... We don't compromise. I, I... Stand for what I think. I dig my heels in. Tug of wars are like that. We dig our heels in so we don't get drug over the line. No one's going to convince me. I ain't changing my ways. 
I'll live alone before I compromise with others. Is this the way we think? Does this kind of thinking creep in and become a part of how we relate to others? I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. Wow, that's not what Jesus did. So compromise has some dirty connotations to it. So, for example, if you go out to Canyon Ferry Dam today fishing, and you're standing below the dam and someone says, the dam is compromised. Is that a good thing? No. Springs a little leak in the middle? I don't know, that'd be pretty freaky. So when something, its structural integrity has been compromised, it's given way. It's given up. It's, if your identity's been compromised, anyone ever had that happen? Someone steal your identity? Well, that's interesting because LifeLock tells me like half of you have had your identity compromised. Okay. Those guys are lying. What does it mean to have your identity compromised? Its security was lost. Someone else got a hold of it. So we don't like compromise when we're using it in those kinds of contexts. But there are other ideas. There's a definition, there are a couple definitions of compromise I want to share with you this morning. A compromise is an, an agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. So Mark used the example of toilet paper on the roll. I know you all thought about this last week, this week if you were here. How many of you went home and had an argument about how the toilet paper goes on the toilet paper roll? Does it go over the top? Yeah. Yeah. You guys are opinionated. All right, does, or does it go around the backside and down? Oh, no, we all have it right. Oh, you're all right? My wife says you're all correct. Okay, this is kind of a funny metaphor. We will fight over the way the toilet paper gets put on the roll. And the engineers amongst us, right, Jeremy, will say it's got to go forward because it's designed that way and the perforations and the original patent and blah, 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 blah. And then all the moms with toddlers go, no, it doesn't because my toddler will hit the roll and it'll just right off the roll. You turn it the other way. So when the kid goes over and spins it, it doesn't unroll. Right, moms? So which is Right. All right, we can argue after service, okay? Let me finish, okay? Wow, we're about to have mutiny on the ship here. But here's the thing. Toilet paper can be funny to talk about, but the reality is we have much more significant real issues in our lives that are the same way. We have tensions over the things that we prefer or don't prefer. Things we might even be right about. I mean, if I go to a judge with a toilet paper issue and he does look at the patent and he does look at the engineering, technically it probably should go on that way. So we could come to a conclusion of what's really, really right. But if I get divorced over it, was it right? Was it right? But, we'll, but we do that, don't we? I'll go to my grave putting toilet paper on the correct way. Come on. Sometimes we got to take inventory of the things in our lives that we're fighting about and go, how serious is it? And even when it's really serious, how do we handle it? Do you know there are disputable matters in the Bible? Did you know that there are things in the Bible that are disputable? 
that we, can, we will argue about till kingdom come, till we get to the other side and God explains it. But we have to be right. I got to get it right. Why do we have so many denominations and groups of churches? Because we're right. Because they're right. Because I'm right and you had it wrong, so I had to leave you, so I'm going to... Listen, there is a time for relationships to be cut. That's true. The scripture even provides opportunity for that. We're going to talk about that in the days ahead, not today. But relationships are so valuable that the scripture repeatedly tells us, make every effort to live in unity. That means you have to compromise. You have to give up things that you prefer to make it work. So any of you that have been married or are currently married know if you've had friendships, if you've had a job, you have to compromise. I think that the right way to put the toilet paper on is A. And my wife thinks that the right way to put the toilet paper on is B. I don't know if we've ever talked about this in our lives, but we'll continue with the example. Someone has to give up. I'll gladly give up that one. I think you're wrong, but for the sake of the relationship and how valuable that is to God, because the world isn't going to know me by the way I put toilet paper on the roll. The world's going to know me by my love where I have given preference when necessary. So how was it that Jesus loved? (laughs) Did Jesus compromise? Really? Jesus wouldn't compromise. He was right about everything. Jesus wasn't wrong about anything. How could he have possibly compromised? Well, it's a tough subject, but I want to present some things to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, did Jesus deserve to be made sin on our behalf? Was that right to treat him that way? Not from his point of view. Wait a minute, I, I... I've done nothing wrong, and yet I'm taking the punishment for all the wrong. There was a compromise that God made with mankind to make the relationship work. Was it wrong? No. But was it right? I don't know. I'm sure glad he did. So we know that Jesus did not sin. So he didn't compromise in that way, but he became sin. He took on punishment for us, but in it, he never, ever sinned. So we're not talking about compromising when it comes to sin. Here's the point I want to make. When I'm talking about compromise, I'm not talking about making something that's sin, not sin. Okay, we're not talking about that. Sin is sin. It's always been sin. It always will be. The definition of it has never changed. The things that are have never changed. Sin is things that are outside the character of God. So none of that changes. We're not talking about compromising right and wrong. But we are talking about compromising disputable matters. Jesus made a concession. Here's another thing. Jesus was falsely accused. How many of you, let's think about this today. You walk out these doors today, this afternoon, and the police are there waiting to arrest you. And you've just been charged with fill in the blank. But you didn't do it. What are you going to do? How are you going to feel? 
I mean, if your immediate response is, God's got this, <laughs> good for you. The rest of us in humanity would go, what? This isn't just. It's not right. It's not fair. I've been wrongly accused. I've got to stand up for my rights. I've got to fight and be defensive. This is wrong that I'm being treated this way. But if Jesus is the example of how to love, what did he do? I want to read you the story out of Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 through 68. Jesus is standing before the high priest, before the Jewish council. He hasn't got to the Romans yet. He's still with the Jews. This is at the time that he's crucified. And the story goes like this. And the high priest said to him, to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So what's going on in this situation? Jesus has been arrested. All of these uh, witnesses have come forward trying to accuse him of things unjustly. But then someone comes forward and says, there's a couple of them actually. One comes forward and says, he said, destroy the temple and in three days he'll raise it up. Did Jesus say that? Yes, he did. And they're trying to figure out, is this man guilty of blasphemy or something? What do we got on this guy? What can we accuse him of? And the high priest says this, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Boom. Jesus just responds with the truth to the high priest. Well, the high priest doesn't like that. He tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is that? Who struck you? Just one of the most horrific scenes I can imagine from the scripture. Unjustly accused. Says one thing. One thing that's true. And his execution is being secured. Did Jesus compromise? What could have Jesus done in that moment? Jesus could have called a legion of angels to rescue him. He was just He was true. He was without sin. He was blameless. And yet he took it. He didn't fight it. He absorbed it. He compromised with mankind. Even though he maybe had the right not to have to do that. He was falsely accused. He was executed. Making a way for you and I. Making a deal with us that we could never make. That's how much Jesus loved you. To forgive your sins, to give you eternal life, to bring you into a reconciled relationship with the God who knew you before you were born and could walk with you and guide you. He made that way. All this out of love for you and I. He endured false accusation. He endured execution. Would he have been just to just leave the world as it was? And let us all face judgment someday. Sure, he would be right in doing so. There's an interesting exchange that he has with Pilate. Pilate is the Roman leader. He's the governor of the area, basically. 
and the Jews can't necessarily crucify Jesus without getting Roman approval because they're occupied by Rome. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate, saying, basically, we want to crucify this guy. And Pilate has, it's just an interesting story. His wife has a dream that he's innocent. Um, Pilate's asking him all these questions. And um, in John's account of the situation, it says this. He's just brought Jesus out before the Jews. They're like, crucify him. Pilate brings Jesus back into his headquarters. And it says this. He entered his, head, entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? <laughs> Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? I don't know if you were standing in that situation. Pilate goes, where are you from? Jesus says, nothing. Like a lamb led to the slaughter as the scripture teaches us. And defend himself. Jesus, he lets us in on a little bit of his thinking here, though, with the way that he responds to Pilate. Don't you, Pilate, don't you know I have the authority to release you or crucify you? And Jesus says this, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Did you ever catch that? From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But by that point, the Jews wouldn't have it, and Pilate caved in. What does Jesus say? You don't really have any authority over me. You only have the authority that was given you. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, they said some pretty horrible things to him. In Mark chapter 15, verse 32, it says... Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. They're mocking him on the cross. The people are saying this. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, could have Jesus come down off the cross? He's Jesus. He does what he wants. Would he have the right to come down? He's been unjustly accused. He's being unjustly executed. Did he have every right to crawl off that cross and prove his point? Yes, he did, but he didn't. Just like in his response to Pilate, he understood something. There's a greater thing at work than the present circumstances. There's a greater story being told than my unjust execution. There's a love that's being demonstrated to humanity, and God is working out something far greater than the moment. Jesus was in it for the long run. If you've raised children, or, and, and they're going through certain phases that for now shall remain nameless, they do things that you don't like, and they're wrong to do them, and you want to punish them. And we do. We discipline our kids. But do we cut, even if, even if they're so rebellious, we love our kids so much that we're not just going to cut the cord of relationship. We will extend grace upon grace. We will be maligned sometimes, mocked, disrespected, those kinds of things. My kids didn't do that. No, we all do that. We all go through these phases, and you as an adult understand there's a greater process at work. They will be adults someday. You want to do everything you can in that journey to help them along the way. 
And you will always be in relationship with him. Jesus understood there's something more significant at work than my momentary situation. There's something more important than the toilet paper on the roll. It's called my marriage. How does that apply to very real things in your life? There's something greater at work than the momentary circumstance. I wonder, do we show love? Do we trust in a bigger God than all of the circumstances we experience right now? We're going into an election year. Yay! Who's excited with me? Everybody goes, uh, why? Because the air will be full of hate, rage, anger, I'm right, you're wrong, cutting of relationships, no compromise, no love whatsoever. The air gets rife with it and we all get tense. And I wonder as God's people, will the world know us by our love? Or what will they know us by? When Jesus laid down his life, he was just beaten and executed wrongly and yet rightly for us. And I wonder about us, about me in that journey. Will I hold love in that highest regard? Compromise doesn't mean we accept sin as not being sin. Grace never gives us permission to sin. That's not what grace is. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and those can be messy together. Because there can be truth, and yet the truth was we deserve death. But the grace of God gave us eternal life because of what he did. God knows how to navigate that better than us. And I wonder, even if I think I'm right, can I extend grace? Even if I am right about the toilet paper, can I extend grace? Actually, I'm hopeful that my wife is actually right about the toilet paper. I hope she extends me grace. But how about the more serious issues? I want to continue in this conversation next week where we look at some of the other relational aspects in Scripture. When, when is it okay to finally give up on a relationship? How far does grace go? Because I think it's so important in a world, world in turmoil that you and I take very seriously that Jesus' commandment to us was to love one another as he loved us. What did that actually look like in real time? What did it look like in Jesus' relationships? First John chapter 4, verses 9-11. through 11. Beloved, reminding us again, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Would you stand, please? I want to encourage you this morning. Take inventory of your heart and your mind and your life and the way that you love others. Where are the lines? It's difficult. Jesus went all the way to the cross unjustly. What does that mean for my relationships, my friendships, my marriage, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my parents? I would also encourage you, you know, check out the tables as you go out, these small groups. Don't just hit the doors. Maybe stop, mingle a little bit, grab a cup of coffee, meet somebody new. We want to build connections and relationships. It's a fundamental, foundational part of the way the kingdom works. How do we become disciples? Through relationships. How do we draw close to God? Through relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd encourage you to get involved in that. Also, um, 
Uh, Derek Robinson, who was up here playing guitar for us, is leaving for YWAM this week. And uh, so we want to gather around after the service. Those of you, the friends and family of Derek, we're going to gather, how about right here? Stage right, your left. We're going to gather for Derek, and we're going to pray for him and send him off uh, on that mission. So excited for him for that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. God, thank you that you loved us that much. <laughs> we never deserved it. We couldn't earn it. You, you bent over backwards, as it were, to make the relationship work. You went all the way to being falsely accused and executed. That's how much you loved. Lord, help us to have that same... We, we have the same spirit. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have your spirit in us. The ability to recognize the opportunities to love others. To even lay ourselves down for the benefit of others. Even if it's not... Even, even though understanding that there's a greater good at work. That we're all on a journey and at different levels of maturity. Different levels of understanding. Some, we, we're probably not right about everything. Help us have grace for each other in those things. And to love as you loved. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hope you have a great rest of your Sunday. And we'll see you back here next week.